You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello, I'm Scott Sock. And I'm Evan Novi williams and you're listening to the Alliance Sports Business Podcast, The Sportacast. Ooh, you changed it up a little bit. I wonder how many people know where you were headed with that, because we do like to tease the topics. So the Alliance of, do they know? How many of you, raise your hands out there, do you know that we're about to talk Pac-12, Big Ten, ACC tie-up? But first, before we get to the business, we have to do the pleasure. Eben, you were on the lakes, the streams, the glaciers, the I don't know where you were, but somewhere in Canada fishing. How did it go for you? Oh, it was fantastic. This is a trip I do, Scott, as you know, do every year. We fly to Toronto, a group of six of us drive four or five hours north to the lakes, spend uh, three or four days camping, fishing, canoeing, portaging. Uh, it was a fantastic way to unplug. Uh, it's rare in our world, Scott, that we get to put the uh, the phone on uh, airplane mode. And I got to do that for four days. And I am uh, extremely grateful and happy to be back. That's cute. We're happy to have you back, but I like the way you rub it in. It's rare that we get to do these things. Evan, <laughs> when do you think the last time was where my phone was on airplane mode? I can't imagine. I, I don't know, think you, I know you answer it. You answer mode. it in the shower. So <laughs> yeah, I think it. I answer think it's in the rare. shower. That's right. If need be, the the only place you can't get me the New York City subway. But I'll do my best in between to return that call. All right, let's get to it. Tell me what I need to know because I'm going to give the backdrop, and then you tell me the response and the reasoning. What we know is Texas and Oklahoma have decided to take their talents to the SEC. So the rest of college football gets very nervous. You've got these other very, very big successful conferences uh, jumbling right away. What do we do? We need to respond. How do they respond? And what is the thinking behind it? Yeah, so the what we saw this week, the Pac-12, the ACC, and the Big Ten formed what they're calling an alliance, the alliance. Um, and what that means, Scott, kind of remains to be seen. I think the three prongs that are kind of most actionable right now. One, they're going to try to do some scheduling together. As you know, college football scheduling happens years in advance. So I don't think if this happens, we're going to see any margin, any, any real change until 2026, 2027, something in that range. But it does seem like these, these leagues are committing to play against each other a little bit more. Um, they're going to try to keep their membership, which I think is the key thing here. At least there seems to be some implication that the PAC 12 wants to stay at 12 members and the big 10 wants to stay at 14 members um, and that this is kind of a, a commitment as a group to not 
you know, not poaching each other's talent and maybe not losing any more talent if possible. And then lastly, it seems like they're going to vote together on governance. And and the backdrop of a lot of this conference realignment is the fact that the NCAA is essentially asking conferences to share a larger burden in the rulemaking and the enforcement of college sports. And what that means is that the richer conferences are going to be able to do a lot of things that the smaller conferences are not. So against the backdrop of conferences having a lot more autonomy, these three leagues seem to at least be saying, okay, we're going to work together in all of our own interests and vote together in those decisions. Uh, And by the way, if I was remiss, just in case... Uh, people hear some background noise, we should tell them, normally you find a very quiet spot to do your podcast. I too share the quiet room with my cat's kitty litter box to do the podcast or the office, you know, the soundproof booth. But my yeah, everybody knows my son plays hockey. Training camp week opens this week, two a days, all that stuff. The uh, I'm going con- to I'm going to really go off on the Marriott in Stamford, Connecticut for not having good enough Wi-Fi to sustain a podcast. So I am coming from the coach's office of Chelsea Piers. Thank you. Shout out all the gratuities to Jeff Hamilton of the Connecticut Junior Rangers lending me his office and more importantly, lending me his Wi-Fi because he's got some great Wi-Fi on this office and things are going well. But if you hear the occasional bang, slam, boom, it's either a kid being thrown up against the wall or a puck missing the net or something like that, or a parent just coming in to yell for some reason because that's what youth sport sport parents do, uh, not unlike college. But let me play the role of you back to what we're talking about, Eben, that if we look at sort of the, the landscape, the SEC right now, college football meteorites, the SEC teams get about $66 million a year. That's until 2024. And then, by the way, if you weren't aware, they have a new deal kicking in with ESPN. That will pay them much more. And then, oh, by the way, Oklahoma and Texas joining in 2025, you would expect that whatever networks are paying will pay more to get those two powerhouses. You combine the power of those teams the conference as a whole, and ESPN, which has a major say in how things go in college sports. Of course, you remember the Big 12 actually accused them of orchestrating all this. ESPN denied it. But there's a lot of power, a lot of leverage, and you just get the sense that everybody else knew they needed to do something. We need to respond in some way, even if we don't have all the specifics. Although realistically, as you and I chuckled earlier, it doesn't mean a whole lot right now because you just don't know where or what or who do I trust. I compared it to Survivor, where you think you have a great alliance with somebody and then all of a sudden you're voted off the island because that person stabbed you in the back. Don't be surprised if that happens in college sports as well. I think that's exactly right, Scott. And, and one of the things that I'm probably most skeptical about this whole plan is that we've seen in the past six weeks, in fact, how little even contracts to stay in conferences are, right? The the Oklahoma and Texas have, there's a grant of rights that keeps them in the Big 12 until 2025. They're trying to get out of that earlier. Um, this is, all of conference realignment happens when people who think that they're partners with somebody else ends up trying to buck that partnership and do something that is in their best interest uh, vis-a-vis or, or as opposed to the best interest of the group that they're currently in. And nothing, this alliance doesn't change any of that. Th- this alliance does not mean that no Pac-12 school will leave to join the SEC. This alliance does not mean that no Big Ten school will poach an ACC school. Um, in fact, there's no contracts at all. I thought one of the most telling parts, Scott, of the, of the press conference yesterday uh, or earlier this week was the fact that when asked if there was any anything papered, any contracts that were signed for this, Jim Phillips, the ACC commissioner, essentially said no 
know, you know, we looked each other in the eye, our regents looked each other in the eye, and that's the agreement that we made. Um, and again, that just to me underscores just how, I mean, they, they can talk all they want about this stuff, but the minute something behind the scenes shifts, this alliance doesn't actually mean much on paper, at least not right now. All right, let me play the role of Eben Novi Williams again, even though you're back and I didn't I love do this it. with Matt Bach, but since you're here, I'll play the role of you. Most games with more than 4 million viewers, college football between 2015 and 2019 for television. And we all know this is what's driving this. How do you become the kind of conference that TV networks or you know, just one linear cable streaming, whatever it may be, how do you have the goods that they want to pay for, that fans want to see and are willing to fork over for? So this is how you do it. Alabama, 35 games with more than 4 million viewers. Not a surprise. Ohio State, 31. Buckeye, not a surprise. Michigan, 26. Not a surprise. Auburn, 17. Not a surprise. We have SEC, Big Ten, Big Ten, SEC. So in sort of this fight for the the 800-pound gorilla award of college football, college sports conferences. You, I mean, the Big Ten's pretty mighty, right? They, they're, that's a pretty mighty conference. They got, they got a lot. and now, But even they felt compelled to go look elsewhere and see how do we unite, what can we do to protect ourselves, particularly in football and men's and women's basketball. Yeah, the last thing I want to say on this, Scott, is there's five Power Five leagues. We've talked about the SEC. They're, they're going to be the giant the minute that Oklahoma and, and, and Texas make the jump. We've talked about the three here in this alliance, the Pac-12, the ACC, and the Big Ten. Kind of left out of a lot of these inner workings right now is the Big 12, which is losing Texas and Oklahoma, by far the richest and most popular brands that it has right now. What's left after they leave are eight schools that are good in some sports. They're not massive national powerhouses by any sense. Something needs to change for them. They either need to go on massive acquisition run, or I know there's going to be other leagues that might be looking at some of their members and saying, hey, maybe we want to add a Baylor. Maybe we want to add a Texas Tech. Maybe we want to add a Texas Christian. Um, so, yes, it seems as though in this kind of rush to grab the nearest lifeboat to a, to a degree, the Big Ten seems to st- the Big Twelve so- seems to be still flailing in the water to to kind of push the metaphor a little bit further. And I'm very curious to see what do they end up joining an alliance? Are they just kind of left to their own? Do they get picked apart by other leagues? It, it is a very uncomfortable past six weeks, and going to be a very uncomfortable next six months for the Big Twelve and its eight remaining members. All right. Also uncomfortable is the relationship between New York Knicks player Nerlens Noel and Rich Paul, who of course is LeBron James's agent, agent to a lot of top NBA players. And Noel is, is suing Rich Paul and his agency Clutch with a K. Um, and this, I'm going to try to succinctly sum this up, if I may, because I just love... This Better is so NBA off-season stuff. Yeah, I, I love this. This is so great. All right, so we had... Nerland's Noel was represented by Happy Walters, okay? At that point, this is years ago... The Noel was negotiating as a free agent with other teams, and he got a, he had an offer of four years, 170 million bucks from the Dallas Mavericks, right? So you've got that in hand. Pretty good, right? You're like, all right, this is good. Only Nerlens Noel goes to Ben Simmons' birthday party in California, runs into Rich Paul. You know, I, I envision this around the pool, but I don't know if that's true or not, but that's how I would write it in the screenplay. So, <laughs> and he starts talking to Rich Paul and allegedly, this is one side of the conversation. This is what Nerland's Noel alleges. Rich Paul tells him, I wouldn't take that deal. I would turn that down. You should come with me because I can get you more money. So 
What does Nerlens Noll do? Turns it down, goes and signs with Rich Paul. That big contract never materializes. He plays for a series of contracts like what, like three, four million bucks. I think he's making about five with the Knicks now. And now he's suing, saying they never looked out for my best interest. They never really pursued. I was not a priority. And by the way, they owe me a whole bunch of money. I think it's like $58 million he lost. I mean, I, this seems like a, a sports biz 101 class you could take in college or a senior in high school. Like the, the agent at the pool said he could get you more money. So you shouldn't take the 170 million and you don't without anything signed or negotiated. I don't want to say like, I'm not Mike McCann here. You know, maybe I'll ask McCann about it later, but I, it just seems to me, and I'll use a very simple adjective. It seems unwise. <laughs> Yeah, this is in, in we often get these stories, these great athlete stories of player X bet on himself. Instead of taking this deal, he worked a one year deal to become an unrestricted free agent and then signed the monster deal. And this is the the reverse of that with a twist, which is that he's blaming his agent now. Uh, but but exactly what you laid out is right, Scott. He had offers on the table when he was a, a restricted free agent. He left his agent to join with Rich Paul under the idea that he would do a one year deal, get to his unrestricted free agency year. And Rich Paul told him that he could get him a max contract somewhere. Uh, called him a hundred million dollar man, ac- according to the filing. Um, and that never materialized. Nerlens had some some health restrictions or health problems. He maybe didn't play as well as people thought he would. Whatever the reason, the contract that Rich Paul seemed to have been telling him was on the table for him in a year never materialized. There's parts of this lawsuit, Scott, that I think are actually fairly interesting. I mean, he's not just, he's not just, to be clear, he's not just suing because he didn't get the contract he thought he was going to get. It seems like he has some evidence that teams like the Rockets, the Clippers, the 76ers were trying to reach out to his agent to maybe talk about some deals and that Rich Paul never responded uh, at all. Uh, so there's some negligence, some, um, some, some, some lack of doing your duties, all that stuff kind of wrapped into this. The other thing we should say um, before I kick it back to you, this seems to be a response to Clutch filing a grievance with the, NB, the, the National Basketball Players Association over $200,000 of unpaid commission that they say that Nerland's never paid them. So there is at least kind of a back and forth right now where both of these groups are alleging for different reasons that the other owes them money. Oi, I'll sum it up with, with Oi and let them uh, see how they can solve it. Now, I want to talk to you about the U.S. Open, the U.S. Tennis Open. And when I lived in Manhattan for 20 years and moved out three years ago, I lived on 58th and 6th, which, by the way, was the perfect spot for hanging out with all tennis players. Mm. Because in the downtime, all the hotels or many of the hotels that were utilized were right there. All the courtesy vehicles would line up on 57th Street and Central Park South. There was no mistaking it was U.S. Open time in New York. I didn't need a calendar. I didn't need to see the temperature dip. I, or, although that didn't pertain now. It's really hot out. I don't need to see the leaves turning. It was clear because I would see people dressed in you know, the white shorts and the white tops and, and, and those courtesy cars all over the place. Years ago, I have a picture with, with my son at like age one, hanging out with Ana Ivanovic. She's, she, like, she thought he was cute online at Starbucks. So I'm like, here, you hold him. <laughs> I have that. I can dig that out. We'll put it on the Sportacast uh, Twitter feed. But uh, what did we learn now earlier this week? Serena Williams, not playing. Rafa Nadal, not playing. Roger Federer, not playing. Um, this is a high price premium New York City event Saturday night. Who am I watching? What am I seeing? I got Djokovic now. I got Osaka. But who else am I scheduling? Prime time, big dollar tickets, uh, nighttime center court Arthur Ashe. 
Yeah, I mean, this is, I, th- I think I read this, the, the first Grand Slam since 1997 that didn't have the three of, have had at least one of Federer, Serena, and 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 Rafa Nadal. I mean, the, the biggest, if you're a, a, a tennis fan, maybe not a fan of one of those specific people, the biggest storyline going into the U.S. Open is still the biggest storyline. It's it's Novak Djokovic going for the Grand Slam. I mean, I know he faltered a little bit in the Olympics, but um, there, there is still a massive storyline happening here. You could probably argue that without Federer and certainly without Nadal, his chances are a little bit higher the u.s open is going to have to lean extremely heavily on that storyline without question but you're right not having three of maybe the most certainly the most accomplished players of this generation but three of also the most popular and the biggest fan draws that is kind of a worst case scenario for the u.s open heading into your first tournament back after last year's financial disaster yeah, they lost what 120 million dollars with no fans. Mm-hmm. That was the number. I, is that the number I saw? I that believe the that's right. Yeah. Lost about 120. And remember, yeah, th- this event funds a lot of the annual things that the USTA does. Which I mean, the main the main part of the USTA is to fund sort of youth tennis and things all around the country throughout the year, and they they need that funding. But they do pretty well in the other years, so I'm guessing they'll survive the one year dip. Do you when I think of U.S. Open, I think of Amex, you know, the big sponsorship. I see Heineken. I don't even know if they still are, but these are the things that I, I remember. Like when I sit and used to go all the time. These are the brand Mercedes. These are the brands Great that I align with the U.S. Open. Me, yeah. it, it, yes, yes, Great Goose. They have the that special drink, whatever it is. Um, but you just you just wonder where is the luxury on this one? Is it enough to just go and have the suite, have the box, have the dining experience? Is that enough or does it have to be sort of the place to be seen? Is it the place to be seen if I'm telling my friends, oh, we got tickets for Friday night. Oh, yeah. Who's playing? Tsipitas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, who? Wait, what? Like, you know, you say Federer is like, oh, my God, you get to see Roger. Serena. Oh, I love Serena. Is it is it an ooh? Ah, must be New York City. Look at me. I'm on camera. There's this celeb. There's that celebrity kind of event when the big the big stars of tennis are missing. I mean, I, I think the easy answer is no. It's certainly not to that same degree. We are still in the COVID nineteen pandemic. I think there was a hope. I'm sure for a lot of people in tennis that that by the time the U.S. Open rolled around, there would be no restrictions at all. They are still at least planning to have a, f- a full suite of of ticket sales for both the indoor and the outdoor courts, from what I understand. Um, which is a is a win, right? That's a, that, that's a big one financially, um, and that'll help ease some of the restrictions. But 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 the truth is that there's still some apprehension among some fans it is not going to be the must go to saturday evenings in the early fall that that we see in 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 new york every year just because of the pandemic and i think that the usta knows that i mean one of the things that that i find really interesting i'm curious to see how it goes we're going to have full amount of fans the media presence is going to be severely restricted and i don't want to go too deep into into our own industry but i do think that that may change a lot of kind of the perception and the the writing and the media coverage around the event as well the fact that there's not going to be as you know scott cuz you've been there for many years you know, there's there's th- um, thousands of, of people from around the world, media wise, that come in and are writing stories, not just 
just about what's happening on the on the courts, but also kind of the the, the celebrity thing happening around the courts at night as well. Um, and if you don't have that in, to the same degree, I also wonder how that changes kind of the public perception of the tournament. Um, another thing that I, I do want to mention, our colleague Lev Akabas did a really good data viz on this uh, earlier in the week, but the prize pool for the U.S. Open is changing pretty dramatically. This shocked me, Scott. Two years ago in 2019, uh, the, the singles, men and women singles winners, 3.85 million was their prize. It went down to 3 million last year, and now it's 2.5 million. So the prize pool for the for the winners is getting much smaller, and the prize pool for the earlier rounds is getting much larger. That money is being distributed to the people who advance to the second round, the third round, the fourth round, the quarterfinals, etc. Um, and this is obviously a push being led by Novak Djokovic and, and Vasek Pospisil trying to get the major tennis tournaments to treat the lower ranked players, the people that are ranked 30 to 300 to treat them a little bit better. So, so actually some big changes at the U S open as well for the players in terms of the, the money they're going to be making. Yeah. There's a big juxtaposition between sort of the idea of the U S open and the luxury that it stands for and the premium hospitality and all that versus what what we've seen from tennis players, and we we so often think of just like the top three, five tennis players because we know them, we see them, and they make a lot of money, they have a lot of endorsements, all that. I gave you a little segue opportunity there. Um, but there's also sort of a union push going on in tennis to better represent what would be called in, in the big four sports leagues, the rank and file, not just those superstars. So it's a juxtaposition there, but you just did demonstrate nicely. And by the way, by the way, can can you give me the Pospisil night once again? That was very well done. The way you just <laughs> Vasek rolled off Pospisil. Vasek Pospisil, very very well done. It's like tipitas, yeah, just like it, I can do it too. So now take me to the uh, the high endorses on, on the ladies' side um, because I'm amazed at the difference between the upper upper echelon and just the upper echelon. I mean it. Off a cliff. This really surprised me. Yeah, our valuations expert, uh, Kurt Badenhausen, released this week the highest paid female athletes in the world. I don't think that the top two names will surprise anybody, but I think you're right. The discrepancy is pretty massive. We have Naomi Osaka at number one, $55.2 million she made in the past year. I believe that is the highest single year earnings ever for a, for a female athlete. Serena Williams right behind her, behind her at, at 35 million. So 55 for Naomi Osaka, 35 for Serena Williams. Then it drops. Number three is Simone Biles at 6 million. That's how big the drop is between the top two highest earning female athletes and every other female athlete on the planet. Um, and if you go down through the top 10 outside of Simone Biles, it's all tennis players, soccer players, um, and golfers, except for Michaela Schifrin at number nine, uh, the skier. But to me, I think you're right. The, 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 the two biggest storylines here, one, the massive drop between Naomi, Serena, and everyone else. I think if you take the final eight people on this top 10 list and add them up, I don't think they reach Serena's $35 million level. That's how big that drop is. And then two, and I was surprised. Yep, I want to hear you. I want to hear your thoughts. I thought this was going to be all tennis players. I thought this list would be entirely te female tennis players. Um, but we have, like I said, a gymnast, a skier, two soccer players. There's three golfers. It's not as tennis dominated as I thought it would be. Yeah, not, nor I. And yeah, I was surprised by the golfers as well. But then when, the, when you get to the numbers that are so low or as low as they were, it, it, it's not shocking because that is a lot of prize money. And you look up top, Naomi Osaka, 55.2 million, but only 5.2 million in winnings. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, an overwhelming majority in endorsements. Same with Serena, 35.5 million overall, 1.5 million 
in winning. So you wonder about the lifespan. This actually bodes very well that you've established a brand, you've established uh, global notoriety, that companies want to align themselves with you, and perhaps it can far outlast your tennis career because that, that's what we're seeing now. The winnings aren't there, but certainly the endorsement dollars are. These two, and this num- these numbers are for the 12 months ended in May 31st of this year. So they do not include the Olympics. I am fascinated when, when this list comes out in 12 months time, when Kurt does that for us, I'm fascinated by two names on this list. One being Simone Biles. She was the American it girl leading into the Olympics. Every sponsor was using her. She had an, an Olympics that were by her standards, a, a pretty large disappointment. Uh, she kind of became a polarizing figure, at least in the American media. Uh, I'm very interested to see how much that jumps in an Olympic year for Simone Biles. And then the second one for kind of similar reasons, Naomi Osaka. She's the the queen of this list. She is the, the unchallenged uh, top female athlete earner in the world right now. She has also had a kind of a bizarre year, not encapsulated by these numbers, in which she took time off of Grand Slams. Um, She's had kind of a contentious relationship with the media. Uh, She did not have a great Olympics either. Um, There's a lot kind of push and pull happening with Naomi as well. So again, I'm really curious, come 12 months time, what we see changing up or down for Naomi Osaka, and then also how much we see moving upwards for Simone Biles. Yeah, and I'm just curious, by the way, just as a sidebar for Simone Biles, how her U.S. tour goes. That post-Olympic tour, usually handled by USA Gymnastics, she took control of it, and she's bringing the rest of the Olympic team, uh, minus Suni Lee, who, by the way, may be on the list next year as well. Um, we'll see how she capitalizes mm. post-Olympics. All right, he is Edmund Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick from the Ice Rink on the Twitter at Soshnick. Cora Veltman, our social media editor, would like you to know the show is at Sportacast, which is the hub of what is the Sportico Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.